Welcome to the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith. I'm Anthony Bruno, and each episode, Matt and I discuss the real-life struggles, ideas, and strategies of successful entrepreneurs and business leaders like himself. Unlike much of the startup or management advice that you hear out there, these conversations don't come from a book or a TED Talk, but rather from the current daily ins and outs of an entrepreneur in the trenches, making it happen every day. This week, we return to the idea of friction, but this time, instead of marketplace friction, we discuss operational friction. While addressing marketplace friction is a way to create a product market fit and address a need, operational friction is how to run an effective company so that you can address that need properly. So examples of operational friction would be things like your technology or your staffing or your processes, etc. Basically, think of operational frictions as internal frictions, while marketplace frictions are external frictions. Either way, removing friction in any sort is the key to a successful business, as you'll hear as Matt gets into it further. So without any more setup, here's Matt. How's it going? It's going well, Anthony. How are you doing today? I am getting by. We had a great conversation last time about the market friction stuff, about how you found ideas for businesses and business plans and whatnot through finding and addressing frictions in marketplaces and whatnot. You've created your business around solving this friction point. You've hired people. You're, you're operational. You're moving and whatnot. So like, what's next, I guess? The important thing is that you're running a business to be profitable. You know, How exactly do you orient or improve the organization so that it can generate as much profit as possible. And of course, profit isn't the only goal. I don't want to pretend that profit should be your only motive. However, being profitable is the only way that you can continue the business. So if what you're doing you think is useful to the universe in any way whatsoever, if you aren't focused on generating profit, your time to do that service to the world, it's going to end at some point. So this idea comes from a lot of different sources books that I've read over the years, my own experience in improving the operations of businesses. It's something I call operational friction. And these are old terms, old ideas. And actually, Carl von Clausewitz, he was a Prussian general and military theorist. He wrote a book called On War in 1832. Some people don't like him, but it's kind of like the Sun Tzu of Europe. He described friction as the hindrance to the execution of strategy, which is a pretty broad idea, obviously. But essentially, the idea is that The execution of strategy, you could look at that and go, well, the friction could be the enemy. But actually, more often than not, you know, to overtake an enemy might be the objective within a war. The actual friction might be things like how you can get all of the armaments on the front lines at the right time, or how you're going to manage a long supply train, or how you're going to feed the horses that are pulling the cannon. These are the challenge. I mean, and this is something that like Napoleon was exceptionally good at, and it made it so that, you know, he conquered Europe. So, I don't know if you've read any Grant biographies or read anything about General Grant, but he was a logistics expert, like making sure that there was the resources available for the troops on the battlefront. It was because of his ability to do that so well that they succeeded. I mean, there were a couple of other things with Grant. He was pretty impressive. In any case, it's usually the smaller things that are easy not to focus on. As it applies to business, they can be stuff that's fairly simple. It could be policy. I mean, it could be a policy that you require somebody to go through a step that costs a lot more money and takes a lot more time that then reduces the ability of the organization to hit its objectives, which could be servicing the customer, it could be generating profit, it could be, I mean, those are all the same in some way. The operational friction is really important. And there's an old business personal development book called The Goal. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but this guy no. named Goldrat was his last name. Goldrat. I think it's like Eliu, I think is his first name. Yeah, it's an Israeli guy. And he had this idea that's called the theory of constraints. And his whole thinking around 
improving a business, making it more profitable, was that everything fell within this theory of constraints. And it's essentially looking for operational friction and resolving that operational friction. So he says you want to identify the system constraint, whether it's a physical constraint or a policy. You want to decide how to exploit the constraint, how you can essentially resolve it. And then you subordinate everything else to that constraint. So meaning like if there's other related policies, I guess you, you say, well, we're willing to change all of those if necessary in order to resolve this one choke point. And then if that doesn't work, then you can elevate that constraint, meaning like you're actually deploying capital into solving it, adding people, for instance. And then he believes after that, you just go back to step one and you'll identify that now what is the biggest constraint. With operational friction, the goal is, and a lot of people don't like this because it feels negative, but essentially you're looking for the problems. Like what is wrong with the way we're doing things today? And they can come off as very negative. But the truth is, is that if you want things to improve, you have to find things that are improvable. You have to find the bottlenecks in the current operation. What is it that's restraining the organization? And I think within any organization, there's a ton of them. Anywhere you go, whether you're a founder or the lowest level employee, people are negative in general, right? They're always going to, it's going to be fun for a while. And then all of a sudden the, the BS starts to pile yeah. in, right? So like, how do you aid identify them? How do you then prioritize of the ones that you identify, which are the ones you need to solve first? And does it have to be just one at a time that you focus on? Like, how does that there's another book by a guy named Michael Gerber called okay. The E-Myth Revisited. He did E-Myth, but I guess Revisited is the only one that's really available or that you can find easily today. His basic theory was you want to work on the business and not in the business. I mean, it's a book for business owners. And okay. it's basically you don't want to end up being, when you start a new business, you're, you're the sales guy or you're the marketer, or you're the engineer, or whatever. But you have to get to a point where you're pulling yourself out of working in the business and you're looking at the perspective of, how can I make this business more efficient? How can I make it run more productively? Like use sort of zero basis thinking to think things don't have to be done the way that we've always done them. Let me tell you about an example that I think is amazing. It's not business related, not exactly, but there's this great video on YouTube of Formula One pit stops. Now it shows a pit stop in 1950 and it shows a pit stop in 2013. I don't know if you've watched any Formula One ever. The pit stops are really fast. Right. So in 1950, in this video, the pit stop takes 67 seconds, which is pretty fast. People are working hard. They're, you know, they're trying to do things. Like there's a one point the guy's kind of like looking around, patting his, one of the mechanics, he's yeah. patting his pockets, looking trying for to something? find something. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, and it's yeah. just, so but that's operational friction. And, and so the key with identifying operational friction is that you first have to identify what the objective is. So the objective of the Formula One crew or the Formula One team is to win the race, Okay. So where are the places where they might make a bigger difference? And if there's equipment, but that's kind of controlled to some degree, you know, mm -hmm. the rules around the equipment you can use and how powerful an engine can be, what fuel you can use, things like that. So there's natural constraints there. So within that, where's the biggest area of opportunity? Well, it's this 67 seconds that you're not moving. You have to exit from the race completely. Other people do too. Mm -hmm. But if you can get an edge there, even if five seconds over somebody else, so they start thinking, how do we do this faster? And Today, 67 seconds in 1950. Today, less than two seconds. Change all four tires, refuel it, do everything that needs to be done to the car, less than two seconds. Was part of that just simply more people in the pit crew? That's part of it, yes. Okay. So they devote more resources to it, but they also invented tools right. to make it faster. So the big goal, we want to win the race. Where's the leverage point where we might do this more effectively? Well, it's in the pit stop. Okay, well, how do we do it? Well, at first, the rules were, by the way, that you can only have a certain number of people. In the, and it probably is still, you can only have a certain number of people. In the first video, the 1950 video, there are four. In the 2013 video, there's 21. 
Half of them looks like they're just standing there doing nothing. They just kind of come toward the car and then they back away from the car. It's so fast, you don't even know what they did. Anyway, it's actually a really interesting video. It's like 4 million views on this thing. But I think the key thing is, is that they identified that as the area where there's a big opportunity. And I'm sure they improved lots of other things too. Sure. But they worked on policy changes, like let's change the rules okay. so that we can have more people devoted to this because it can make a difference. And then they invented the tools. They invented new tools to be able to do it more effectively. And then the people who are doing it, they train like professional athletes. I mean, to be in a pit crew, you have to be That's incredibly fast, agile, great shape. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, you like it's not just some, you know, portly mechanic that just right. goes out there and it's almost more yeah. impressive than the driver. It is very impressive. <laughs> yeah. So in any case, I think that that's a great example of operational fiction. The way you find it, though, you know the real goal, and you can identify where the opportunity, where the leverage points might be in that. And then you go deep into that and go, well, what has to change? And from the Formula One pit crew, it was policy had to change, the tools had to change, the characteristics of the people who could do the work well had to change. That makes sense. And I want to talk about some of the executional parts here in a second. But if we could take just a further step back on the identification part for a second, is there anything that you need to be doing in advance of this before you even start to identify where those friction points are? Is there, is there, do you have to be doing certain types of like tracking? Do you have to be you know, monitoring certain things too? I mean, measuring things is very important. I think you can also get into you know, over measurement and not really understand it and you can cloud your judgment. Like you can okay. not see the forest through the trees. I think last month's HBR actually, our business review okay. was saying like how terrible KPIs were, you know, like that they were making the argument that it can be very destructive to an organization to have them because they overemphasis on them, you know, okay. they get ruled by them, but everything is a balance. You have to have enough information to be able to recognize where the opportunity might be. For instance, if you, you're measuring the time of your pit crew and you're measuring the time of other pit crews and you see that they are 20% better, you go, well, there's obviously room for improvement here. And I think that the idea of measuring things fundamentally is that they can help direct you to where there might be opportunity. But the problem with it is, is that knowing where things are today doesn't actually lead you to understand what's really possible. Do you know what I mean? So like, let me give you an example with royalty exchange. So we had okay. the listings. There was one point where it took us more than 30 days on average for a signed agreement mm-hmm. you know, occurred to when the listing went live. It was over 30 days. Now it's less than four. We improved that over a period of about six months from 30 to four. Because no one does this, we didn't know what was actually possible. Could it be done in 24 hours? Could it be done in one hour? I mean, can it be done instantly? It seems sort of um, dumb for us to think, actually, that given the fact that it's taken us 30 days, how could we possibly do it in four? How could we cut 90% of the time out of there? So like, it's not obvious, I guess, because it's not an incremental improvement. So usually when you're measuring things, you think that the changes you can make are incremental. But when you're really reducing operational friction, they're actually fundamental changes typically. And it starts with asking these really deep questions like, why can't this be instantaneous? Almost trying to ask questions about why can't this be something that is totally magical and absurd and impossible is the only way you start to actually come up with the creative solutions uh-huh. for how to actually drive it there. I mean, if you would have said to them 1950 that we're going to do this, yeah, 67 seconds, we're going to do it in 1.97 seconds. Right. They'd been like, you're nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. No way. It's impossible. Okay. I mean, the same analogy though. So the, the analogy with the pit crew was that how do we make the race last shorter? How do we speed our time to the finish line? And one of the things they defined was, okay, amount of time spent in the pit, you lower that, you lower your overall time, you're more likely to win the race. You're a GMV, you know, gross market based volume based business. How do you increase the throughput? Either you're going to get more auctions, which I'm sure is another thing that you're working on, or listings you have are 
quicker to market. That means you're spending less time getting it into the marketplace and more time getting new ones into the funnel, et cetera, et cetera, right. et cetera. So your goal was more auctions, basically, right? More listings, rather. Well, our real goal is to a certain level of profitability. Profitability. And right. to get there, you need to have more listings. Right. And to get more listings, you need to have less listings in limbo. Right. And so if I go back to the gold rat theory of constraints, so subordinating the gold to everything else, it's like, let's look at all the policies we have in here. What exactly is going on so that to see if we can strip away anything? And, you know, there was plenty that we could strip away. So when he says subordinate it, it's that. The fourth step he has is just elevate the constraint. What he means there is really if you're going to deploy more capital to try and deal with it. So like knowing that getting listing throughput was a serious constraint for us, what some people might do is they might hire more people to work on it first. Mm -hmm. Okay. With this problem, I was open to that idea, but it's better to start first with let's strip away everything and see if there's something we can cut out, see if there's some way, maybe a piece of technology we can insert in the middle that's way less expensive, you know, that is way more scalable so that we don't just throw more resources at it. Because when you throw more resources at it, more capital, when you're doing that on top of something where there's great friction, it actually, that friction only gets amplified the more resources you put onto so it. So remove before you add. Exactly. What can be removed, and then you add to make the things that can't be removed more effective. I'm, I'm just exactly. I'm, I'm making sure I'm saying your words right. That's right. And especially if it involves more capital, you really want to try not to have to deploy capital in any area where you don't really need it. Just one more example I'll talk about with operational friction is that in the recent past with Tesla, you know, they were in what Elon Musk called production hell. They have all these orders for all these cars and they have this new assembly line that they made that was super automated, you know, in order to try and reduce operational friction to make it cheaper to produce the cars. It didn't work. They had to hire humans to come in because the automation wasn't up to snuff, I guess. So they just weren't getting cars produced. Mm -hmm. And for this like month long period, Elon Musk is sleeping on the factory floor, working on these small engineering problems to improve the efficiency of the line. The line, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately got through it and then they achieved the production numbers that they needed to and it's continued to scale since then. But more capital didn't solve the problem. Investing in more machines and more automation didn't solve the problem because there were more fundamental issues, I guess, along the way. Well, I guess the whole thing comes down to identifying what it really is the problem, exactly. right? Like until you know what the problem is, you can't address it. And so pouring more money into something that might be the cause of the problem might only exasperate the problem. Precisely. Called it production hell because they were just, it was felt like a quagmire. They couldn't get anything through throughput. And in order to be able to understand and resolve the individual issues, he had to, he was there in fact, really, all really the time <laughs> trying to understand it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all the best talent in the company was just focused on these minute issues that really were key bottlenecks, key points of friction. They had the customers, they had all the raw materials, they just had to put it together. How do we do it in a way that is somewhat efficient? And they overcame that over time. So that's certainly, I think, a great example of one. But the objective was, like with winning the race, was really clear in that, of course, Tesla was seeking profitability, like any company. But this, they just had to meet certain orders for customers that already existed. And the problem was that just we can't put the cars together effectively enough, fast enough to meet this demand. And basically then we're killing our cash flow and it's going to kill the business if we can't get these things out the door. It's finding the which one to focus on is, is mm -hmm. the part that I think is really the magic in all of it, right? And, and, that, and just knowing what that is. And it feels like your story about Elon Musk sleeping on the floor and getting right in their hands on himself in these really minutia type details. I mean, that sounds like what you need to do. It's, it's really kind of getting into that just these, these really, really specific details, really granular things, because somewhere within those, that morass of just tiny little things, you find the one thing that matters, and that has this massive 
oversized effect on everything, but it's really getting into the weeds, it sounds like. Is that correct? Sometimes the KPIs are hiding actually what the thing is. A lot of times it's decisions that you made before that everyone sort of takes for granted now that has never been looked at since. A lot of times it's policy. When we looked at our process for listings, mm-hmm. you know, we found that we were doing things that we definitely didn't need to be doing. We were making customers go through extra steps that were totally unnecessary that we could do or that we could be more proactive about. You know, if you look at the KPIs around, around that, you go, well, I don't know. We've chosen to pass some of the responsibility to the client. There's nothing we can do to affect this. If you assume that yeah. as something that's a constant, that we're going to constantly rely on the responsibility of the client to do something for us before we can really begin our work, then you can't ever improve anything. So you have to understand what those details are. And the people who are usually working within those details, it's hard for them to see it necessarily. They might not even know the reasons why it was there originally. And so why would they question the reason? They just, you know, it was there in place and they assume that there must be some smart reason why it's there. And oftentimes it's not a smart reason. It's just an accident. We just did things this way. I think the key though is that you have to know what the basic objective is, whether it's trying to increase the, you know, throughput of a specific system within the business, or if it's trying to lower the costs of something within Mm -hmm. the business. If you identify the goal, then it's walking around looking for problems and saying, why aren't we able to do this today? Like, what exactly is the problem with this? So it's looking for problems. But the clue that there's a big opportunity there is that you look for examples where it actually goes really well. So we go back to the pit crew thing. If I can see another pit crew that's doing it in 30% faster than our pit crew is, that shows me that there's an opportunity there. Or if you take it back to royalty exchange and look at the listings, why do some of them only take three days? Some of them do only take three days. So what's happening with those that makes it so that those are able to go that way and other ones are taking 45? So there's something about that environment, you know, or about that specific situation where there's an opportunity. So there's this expression, success leaves clues. And I think that that's definitely true. I mean, if you see signs of hope with something where there's outliers to the positive in a process, if you can really dig in and understand why it worked, Oftentimes I can give you a sense that there's a big opportunity there. So, and that's fascinating to me. So that like that goes back to this idea that when something good happens, don't just be like, oh, we got lucky. That's the flashpoint. That's where you should be doubling on being, okay, let's analyze the hell out of this and figure yep. out what made that so and what of that could be replicated in other areas. I exactly. mean, sometimes it is lucky, but more often than not, it's not. Luck is a real thing for sure. But it's really the comparison between the average and when something goes well. You're looking for the contrast of when stuff doesn't work and when stuff does work. And let's flip that around. Sorry, don't interrupt. But like, okay, so when something goes really well, let's analyze that and see what we can replicate. But can the same be said about when something goes really, really off? Definitely. The important thing is most often, in fact, people overanalyze, though, the things that go bad, and then they institute more policy. To protect to it from, protect that, from happening, that bad thing happening. As opposed to finding what went well and, protect, and create policy to it. Okay. And that's how you create friction, actually. Organizations create friction by overanalyzing what went wrong and trying to build elaborate mechanisms to make sure that thing doesn't go wrong again. So you have to be careful about that. You have to look for what's wrong, know what's going wrong, but put it in perspective like it's not actually that big of a deal. I may have be personally guilty of that several times on certain things. That's a really interesting point. Seems natural. You know, we got to set up this extra sign-off by a manager in order to make sure we don't make this kind of mistake again, but it actually doesn't keep mistakes from happening. That's kind of an aha moment for me. That's really interesting. So like when we're talking about things like friction, it's we started off talking about the identifying areas of friction and trying to find ways to remove them. But it almost sounds like even before that, make sure that you're structured and your mindset is, in, is set up in such a way that you're not first adding friction before you look for the ways to remove other types of friction. That sounds like where most of the problem might be is, is the, the need to not add friction along the way. I think that's definitely true. You know, it's mm-hmm. a fear of making mistakes is usually where the, those additions of friction occur from. 
you know, we screwed something up. We don't ever want to screw it up again. How can we build a system that'll make sure we won't actually screw anything up? And almost always people build those systems where the odds of error actually go up because you're diffusing responsibility or you're adding complexity. Because one of my questions I was going to have for you was like, as the CEO or as the founder or whatever, the manager, you know, whatever position you're in to be identifying and removing frictions, my question was going to be, when are you the friction yourself? You're the friction when you're adding to, when you're making things too complex, when you're, when you're trying to protect against mistakes, you become the friction. Yeah. I think one of the greatest things you can do as a leader, whether it be a CEO, a manager or a founder is that you make things more simple and provide more clarity. And usually those go hand in hand. I mean, there's a lot of complexity that people are dealing with. Everything seems, it feels very ambiguous. There's not black and white. That's why I'm a huge fan of heuristics, actually, like mm-hmm. a rule of thumb. I don't want a policy. I want a philosophy. I want a rule of thumb. Like, you know, this is generally how one would handle these kinds of things. This is generally how one would behave. And rather than trying to have elaborate policies and procedures that really scrutinize every detail of everything, because that does definitely, definitely create more friction. So I'm sorry, can you define heuristic? I mean, you you use that word a lot. I think I might have misidentified it or misinterpreted it. A heuristic is a rule of thumb. So it's like, it's something that is typically true, but it's definitely not always true. We could have a really elaborate rule about, for instance, not competing with our investors on our platform. Mm-hmm. A really elaborate, like under these circumstances, you can, under those circumstances, you can't. Or you just have a simple heuristic, which is we don't ever want to be seen as being competitive. So the only time we've ever, like I've ever bid on something that other investors could bid on was when I opened the auction. And that was it. And that's the policy. So you can open an auction and bid, but you can never bid after an investor has bid. If you're doing that, then you're competing with them. And whether you have more information than them or not, they're going to think you do. And so you have to avoid that altogether and just never bid against an investor. We can open an auction, but nothing else. We could make sure that we're not competing against an investor, but we couldn't make sure that people wouldn't think that we're competing against investors. So you can always pick apart any heuristic, though. That's the key thing, is that it's always also wrong. It is the way that humans have evolved to deal with life. There's so much that we don't understand. We develop mental shortcuts for ourselves Mm -hmm. that help us to know how to deal with certain environments. I want to bring this back to the friction conversation. I didn't want to get off track, but it sounds like a heuristic could also be a source of friction too. For instance, a heuristic could be, it's always been done this way, so I'm going to continue doing it this way. Yeah, that's a bad heuristic. Right. So there's still ways of identifying frictions within those as well. So Yeah, I think that the key thing is you want simplicity in everything that you're doing, and you want to look to strip away complexity wherever you can find it to make the system function more effectively. If you want to reduce errors, if you want to increase efficiency, you want to reduce complexity. And so being able to pull back and really dig into a process like Elon did and and with the assembly line, look Mm -hmm. at every little thing. When he looked at everything on the factory floor, there's probably common themes in the assumption stack that people had about Mm -hmm. the way their work should go that he realized should be totally removed altogether and are hard to kind of gut from on high. It's hard to have a mandate said, let's gut these things until you really understand the assumptions that are almost subconscious in the way that you're going about doing things. Mm -hmm. So simplicity is the key, though. Absolutely. Sometimes you have to deploy more capital to it, but, you know, simplicity is definitely the key. And if there's an area where I see a problem, I try and zoom in a thousand times to closer to the problem or a hundred times, maybe. And then zoom out 100 times from the problem. So like if I zoom in, I might see a specific way that one specific person is interacting with one specific client. And in that, there might be clues. But then if I zoom all the way out and I might see the way that that team is interacting with another team that's causing a problem, or I might see that fundamentally the product is the problem, actually. It's the expectation we're setting with the customer that's causing this point of friction further down. So you kind of 
zoom in and zoom out. And that's what's really hard if you're working in the business. I mean, I could, I could ask you a million questions because it's like, these are the things that, it's those details. Like, how do you do that? How do you know when to do that? You know, this kind of thing. So maybe there's not really an answer there, but maybe there's like a practice or a habit or routine that maybe you can do that'll help you get to those points where you're, where if you didn't have those routines, you wouldn't naturally know to go there. I don't know if that's something you can answer. What you look for is you look for where the organization's is spending its time and its capital. With us, it was a listing process. We had lots of resources proportionally devoted to this, to the mm-hmm. listing process. So it was a lot of time and expense and it, it was clearly a bottleneck. So you're looking at where, where the money was going. Was it like, I'm going to go in and I'm going to find out why it's taking so long for the listings to go to market? Or was it, what are my people doing? It's actually starting to, does it have to take as long as it takes to do this? And then imagining a scenario where, what if there was, was could be fully automated and done instantly? Mm-hmm. And within that paradigm of, if it could be done fully done and instantly, let's look at the process and see why it couldn't be done that way. Right, and again, what I'm trying to get at is just that, that's a specific example yeah. and that, that makes a lot of sense. But what I'm trying to say is that for anyone listening, you know, who's trying to apply this to their own lives, is there something that they can do a way of, of, of just evaluating things that helps you open your eyes to the fact that there might be an area that maybe right now you don't think these would be improved at all. But in fact, if you were to do these habits, you would suddenly realize that these are things that could be addressed. You know what I'm saying? Just like yep. things that you do, not because you know, you don't, you don't really know why you're doing them yet, but you know that by doing them, that'll lead you to something helpful. Well, I think the two components to it, number one is you have to have a vision of how something might potentially be done. And I think if you go to the Elon example, mm. His vision was that it could be an entirely automated assembly line where basically, you know, the raw materials come in and there's robots that do everything. It rolls right. through. So have your dream scenario. That's what we're trying to achieve. And then why is that unachievable today? So have a dream scenario and then constantly look for things that are keeping that from happening and then dig it into that. So you have a dream scenario and like, of course, what you hope your business to be and what you hope your customer experience to be. How do you make these processes and systems ideal, as ideal as possible? What does ideal look like? And then why can't that be done? You look at the set of constraints that are there and you make compromises like, well, it's not worth the cost of trying to, or the risk of trying to change this part. But this other part is really basically unnecessary and we don't really need to have that as part of our process. But I'm just wondering, is there anything more like mundane at all? Like, you know, do you look at where are we spending the most money? Where are people spending the most time? Like just regularly looking at those kind of stats. Sometimes some of the best KPIs could be attributing expenses especially if you're salary intensive expenses, if you're, you know, if the biggest expenses as they are in our business associated with people, then you want to look at how many people and then how much capital are we devoting to a specific department or a specific group within the business. Mm-hmm. When you see that that's disproportionate, you know, when you see that there's a lot of capital being spent in a specific area, then you know that that's an area that there might be low hanging fruit to improve. Right. And, and what I would imagine is that whether that's time or capital or whatever those things are, like if you're looking at one that seems to just clearly stands out, it doesn't necessarily mean that that needs to be condensed. It could mean that it needs to be actually expanded. You don't know yet, right? It's just, but that's just the area that draws your eye. Because that's what I'm saying. Like a business, there's so many things going on to know which of these things to focus on. I got to imagine is the hardest part. So these are things that you look at. And then when you dig into it, that's when you learn what needs to happen. It's not like it definitely needs to go one way or another. It's just, it needs to be investigated. That's true. If you can find areas where large capital is being deployed, oftentimes there's something there. The other thing that's obvious is you're just looking for choke points. Where do things get backed up in a process? In any business flow or any system, there's a certain point where things kind of get blocked and mm-hmm. like the throughput is limited in some way. And so if you look at, you know, if you can listen to your employees and hear them complaining about that they keep doing something, but they can't get through compliance or they can't right. get whatever. 
I think that that sort of feedback about that bottleneck is often a big clue as to where it is too. Focusing on capital seems to be the most obvious one, honestly. Identify, resolve, and subordinate. Would that would those be the th- three key? Yeah, Goldratt's theory of constraints. It's really those three things over mm-hmm. and over again. He has a fourth one, which sometimes it's like you have to put more capital into it. But it's basically those things over and over again and walking around looking for where the biggest constraint is. If you think of a good like COO or director of operations, that's really what they're focused on all the time. Where are we wasting capital here, wasting resources? Where are the bottlenecks that are keeping us from doing so much more with the talent we have on hand? Are there any other like summarizing bullet points that, I mean, those are the ones that, that, that I took away with from my notes, but is there any other points that you should take away as you're trying to think about this? I think the biggest thing is asking questions about why something can't be so much better than it is and okay. not incremental better, but like fundamentally differently better than transformationally better. Transformationally better. Okay. And I think that it's an automated assembly line. It's a pit stop in less than two seconds. You know, it's instantaneous auction listings. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of thing that actually drives the innovation that reduces the friction within an organization and really leads to sustainable power profits, high margins, and everything else that a business really needs. And I think the one thing that I also heard that I uh, to summarize is the remove before you add. That's a great heuristic. That is a wonderful heuristic. I, mean, I wish there was like a cooler quote for it or something like that, but I love it. Just remove before you add. And it's that, so good. It's a good example of heuristic because it's definitely not always true. It's true more often than not. And if you just use that rule first, you'd probably make way fewer mistakes and move your whatever you're trying to do further. I love it. I think that's great. And then, I'm sorry, you mentioned a number of books along the way. I was wondering if you could maybe just, you had uh, Carl von, I can't even pronounce that. I I can't even remember, Clauswitz. Yeah. His book is called On War. I wouldn't recommend it. Actually, it's very difficult to read. He's he's kind of a- Is it an impression? He's a very difficult- (laughs) It was been translated a number of times, uh, but I, yeah, it's probably not the best book. If you want to read a book on war, I think Sun Tzu's Art of War is better. But Goldratt's book, The Goal, is kind of a classic and- um, What's the full name? It's Elayu, Elayu, Elayu Gold Goldratt, Rat, and the G-O-L-D-R-A-T-T. book is called... G-O-L-D-R-A-T-T. Right, and what's the book again? The Goal. The Goal. Yeah, I think it came out in the 80s. Okay. Yeah. But it's very good, and it, for an operator, it's an incredible book. And I also think that another great one I recommend to managers is E-Myth Revisited. E-Myth Revisited. Yeah, I read this in probably you know 99 or something, and it was okay. like, it really changed my perspective, and I recommend it to a lot of people. But his core theory is you want to work on the business, not in the business, and you want to build systems that produce consistency and efficiency. But read the book. It's definitely worth it. All right. Great. Well, thanks. This was actually very illuminating for me. I I, I took a number of things away from it, so I appreciate it. Thanks. Awesome. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.